This morning's scripture reading comes from select passages from Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 4. Chapter 1, verse 8 through 17. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who was better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. Today we'll be looking at the book of Ruth, and uh, we're going to talk about the importance of relationships in our lives. Relationships, people like family, friends, uh, they can also be an idol in our lives, because an idol is anything apart from God that gives us a sense of worth, that gives us a sense of significance. And uh, these earthly idols, they never last, they never satisfy. That's why God always warns us away from idols. But through the book of Ruth, we're also going to see the importance of what it means to have relationships that are built in the foundation, on the foundation of God in Christ. And so we're going to look at the background of Ruth, and then we're going to look at three lessons that uh, really come from this narrative, a very, very powerful story, powerful narrative. It begins with uh, the emptiness, the bitterness of Naomi. Naomi is an Israelite. She's an immigrant to the uh, area known as Moab, who was really, uh, they were enemies of Israel. They were neighboring enemies of Israel. And um, Naomi went with her husband during a time of famine to go to this area, this region. And there she raised two sons, and those two sons married Moabite women. And all of a sudden, disaster strikes. First, Naomi loses her husband. 
And then she loses, later on, she loses both of her sons. And as a result, she's socially and economically broken. She's just torn apart. Now, you have to understand that in those days, a widow is probably the most socially and economically vulnerable person uh, in those days. Because in those days, in that social structure, in that leadership structure, in that economic structure, the family was the most valued in all of society. The family, the size of your family, the number of sons you had, it determined your social currency. Because if you have sons, you've guaranteed labor. In an agrarian society, the more hands you had to manage your land, you could grow that land. So if you had sons, you can trust your sons. They're not going to steal from you. They're not going to shirk back on the work. So to have sons was to have a treasure. And uh, you had, uh, when you grow old, their wealth, the, the wealth of the son, their advancement, that was really your social security. That was really your 401k. That was your retirement investment. Now, Naomi, she loses her husband, big blow, but she loses both of her sons. And now she's older on top of that. And so she's got no parents to go back home to. She's in a foreign country, so she probably has to go back. She's got no parents to go back to. Um, She has no prospects for another marriage in her life. And, uh, And so she's really destitute. She's got no prospects of building a new family. She's got no adult children, neither son nor daughter to support her. And so she's broken and she's empty. And she says, you know, it's become bitter for me. That's what she says. Now, we're going to look at her culture before you judge her culture. I always have to say this. Every culture has a way of defining who their outcasts are, who their nobodies are. Now, we say, oh, uh, we're we're beyond all that. Our our society is advanced. It's easy to look at those days and say, you know, how could they treat Naomi like that? How could they treat Naomi like an outcast like that? And then we look in the mirror, and we're embarrassed by our weight. We're embarrassed by what we do. We're embarrassed by our salaries. We order a salad uh, for lunch to watch our figures. Naomi would never have cared about those things in her day. In our day, you can have a large family, but if you don't have individual accomplishment, you're considered a nobody. You feel like a nobody. In those days, it was, it was the reverse. You can have lots of individual accomplishment, but if you didn't have a family, if you didn't have a legacy, you were considered an outcast. You were a nobody. And so what Naomi does is she goes back to Israel She goes back to her hometown in Bethlehem, and the passage does a sad play on her name because the people, they kind of recognize Naomi. And they say, is this Naomi? And she responds, and she says, call me Mara. It's a play on her name because the word Naomi means sweet, and Mara means bitter. And so she says, so people say, is this Naomi? She says, yes. At one point in my life, I walked away, and, and life was sweet for me, and I was sweet, but I come back now bitter. I come back Mara. And so in this passage, she, Naomi, she tells her two daughters-in-law, uh, she says, uh, I want you to go back home. They're Moabite. I want you to go back home. Go back to your families. Go back to your parents. You are young widows, which means you have prospects. You can get married again. Stay within your race. Get married again. Have a chance at building another family. Naomi's thinking for her, do- her two daughters-in-law. She knows that if they follow her, yes, on one hand, they'll be they'll be considered foreigners. And if you're an immigrant, moving into an immigrant, uh, another, if you're emigrating into another country, you know that you're going to be treated differently. But in her country, you would be an object of violence. You could be an object of war, an object of wrath. 
And so you could get hurt. You could get killed. She knows this. She knows they could suffer racial animosity. And, and so she says, I want you to go back. I want you to go back to your land. In chapter 1, verse 8, which we just read, she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have to me, pretty much. That's what she says. What does Ruth say? An amazing thing she says. She says, Where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you buried, I will be buried. It's an amazing thing she says. In other words, she's saying this. She's saying, I'm binding myself to you in such a way that whatever happens to you will happen to me. My life is tied to you in such a way that whatever happens to you happens to me. Now think about it. Every act of immigration is drastic. Because if you think about what are you doing when you're an immigrant, you're leaving behind everything that's familiar. You're leaving behind everything that's known to you, your language. I mean, think about language, your culture, all the cultural differences, all your cultural values. You're leaving behind, you can only bring so much with you, so you're leaving behind pretty much most of your possessions, most of your wealth, all of your social connections. You're leaving all that behind. It is a, tra- it is a drastic thing. Immigrants have to leave behind what's familiar, but they always do it because they believe that the prospect of a better life is greater than anything they're leaving behind. That's why they do it. But Ruth, Ruth is leaving behind everything, knowing it's going to be a worse life, knowing she's absorbing tremendous risk in her life, And it's all because she loves her mother-in-law. There's this complete, unfailing pledge of love and loyalty that extends beyond all measure in her life. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. The word here, Naomi says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have done with me. The word kind there is a very, very special word. It's the word hesed. It's a very special word in Hebrew. It's a word that's often used, or very particular word in the Bible, that's particularly demonstrated or used to demonstrate God's love for his people. Most of the time it's used to describe God's love for his people. It's this unfailing, unmerited love. That's what's demonstrated by Ruth to her mother-in-law. To her mother-in-law. Think about that. And so it's very powerful. Chapter 2. They finally go into, they're in Israel, and Ruth is the breadwinner. She's now gleaning in the fields. What it means to glean in the fields is after the harvest, you have this person who owns a field. After the harvest, they kind of move on with the harvest, but there's stuff that's left over. Gleaning in the field is what a poor person does to kind of walk through and pick up whatever leftover grain there is to feed their family. So Ruth is really, she's, she's homeless. She's penniless, and she's, she's working uh, to glean the fields, and she happens upon the field of this man named Boaz. And Boaz is a, is a relative, a distant relative of Naomi. And Boaz hears about Ruth, about how dedicated and loyal she is to her mother-in-law. And he's warned by that. He's moved by that. He's amazed by what she's willing to do for an Israelite mother-in-law. And Ruth, she's amazed because Boaz starts to show her kindness. The same kindness, again, incidentally, well, not so incidentally, used uh, in this passage, said, right? Uh, Boaz starts to show this kind of kindness to Ruth, and Ruth is amazed by that kindness. And Naomi starts to realize, she realizes Boaz is one of the few people that could be called a kinsman redeemer. Very special word in this passage, 
What is a kinsman redeemer? In Israelite law, the kinsman redeemer, the goel in Hebrew, is a relative, distant relative, an ancient relative, who is uh, able, he's the one person who's able to take on the duty of the family, to restore the rights of that family, to avenge the family if they're in trouble. That's what a kinsman redeemer is. A kinsman redeemer had the right to buy back the ancestral land of the family that had lost it because you're related to them. You're, you're a kinsman, but you could redeem that land for the family. When Israel first came into this land, they pretty much had all these plots of land. They gave it out to the families, to the clans, to the tribes, and you inherited this land. You, earn, you didn't earn it. You were given this land. It was by grace. But if you lost it, or if you fall into extreme poverty, you can kind of, in a way, mortgage the land, and a kinsman redeemer can pick up that mortgage, buy it back for you. The person who owned it had to sell it. But you can't just buy the land. You have to marry into the family and buy the land. You'd have to marry the kinsman redeemer. In this case, that means Boaz would have to marry Ruth. Now, Ruth, remember, is not Israelite. She's a member of a despised race. And so Naomi says, I mean, I know he could do this, but why would he do it? He would be sacrificing, he wouldn't just be risking, he'd be sacrificing his reputation, he'd be sacrificing his honor. In fact, in chapter 4, there is another kinsman redeemer that precedes Boaz. And that person wants to buy back the land, and Boaz says, okay, well, you can do that, you just have to marry Ruth. Very simple. And the guy says, wait a second, I have to marry Ruth? I don't want to marry Ruth because I will be risking my estate. That's what he says. He says, it's going to ruin my estate. It's going to ruin my reputation. Well, why is that? It's not too far, not too distant from our thinking. Think about it way back in your life, in junior high school. No matter how popular you are, if you start to hang out with people who are every, every, every junior high school, you know, every grade in junior high school has a group of people that are considered outcast or untouchable. They're socially sick. They're socially diseased. Everybody has that. Every social circle has that. No matter how popular you are, if you start to hang out with people in that social circle, their, what do you say, their outcastness starts to transfer onto you. So after a while, you become more and more socially outcast. Their outcastness, their repulsion, their repulsiveness starts to transfer onto you. And you slowly become an outcast. Why? It's because uh, it's that transfer. This kinsman redeemer in chapter 4 says, I can't risk my reputation. I don't want to risk my estate. In chapter 3, Ruth, in the night, lays at the feet of Boaz and asks to marry her. Now, even in our society today, that's bold. That is atypical for a woman to ask a man to marry her. And so whether you're a traditional person, whether you're a modern person, Ruth doesn't fit into any category, modern or traditional. She's incredibly beautiful, but she's incredibly feminine. Um, She's incredibly uh, beautiful, um, but she's incredibly courageous. She's incredibly humble, but she's incredibly bold. Very atypical in her society, very atypical in our society for that matter. It's an incredible picture of biblical femininity, but it's really a picture of biblical humility, biblical boldness for anybody, anybody here in this room. Boaz takes up this offer. In fact, he sees it as a kindness. He's moved by her. He takes her up on this offer, 
And through a series of acts, uh, actions, restores the line of Naomi, marries Ruth, and as a result, what happens? Ruth and Naomi are spliced into the line of Judah, into the line of David, and eventually into the line of Jesus Christ. And uh, I've said this before, I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are in this room. In 2,500 years, who is going to be studying your life? We're still studying the life of Ruth. An amazing narrative. Why is it here in this book? Why is it here in the Bible? What are the lessons? A couple quick lessons. One, we have the absolute life-changing power of a true friendship. Case said, unfailing love, unfailing loyalty that extends beyond measure. That's what, that's what the, de- there's no English word, there's no American word for, for, this, for this word in Hebrew. He said, it's an unfailing love, an unfailing loyalty that extends beyond measure, beyond all of our abilities, beyond all of our strength. It's completely unmerited, completely undeserved. Naomi says, I want you to go back to your gods. And Ruth says, may the Lord deal with me. The, wor- the Lord, word Lord is capitalized here. It says, may the Lord deal with me ever so severely, she says. May the Lord deal with me if if anything but death separates you and me. She calls God Lord for herself. She's basically saying, I understand your God is your Lord. I want your God. I convert. I want your God. Naomi's sending her back to her family, back to her God. She says, may the Lord show you kindness. May the Lord show you kindness. May the Lord show you hesed. Naomi's lost, Naomi's broken, Naomi's destitute, but she desires this unfailing kindness of God for her, for her uh, daughters-in-law, for Ruth. She's willing to sacrifice. She says, you know, I'm old. God has lifted up his hand against me, but I want you to thrive. I want you to experience the unfailing kindness of God to the end. Naomi is committed to that. She says, I want you to go back to your family. I want you to experience, have a chance at experiencing this unfailing kindness of God. And what converts Ruth? She says, I want your God. Naomi's not forceful with her. Naomi's not pounding down on her. Naomi's uh, broken, but she still cares for Ruth. She wants to send Ruth back to thrive. Naomi's destitute. Naomi's empty. She's bitter. She says, it has become bitter for me, but I want you to go back so that you can thrive. I want you to live. I want you to survive. I want you to really experience the joys of life. She sacrifices her needs for their needs. Naomi's going to be alone, you understand? Naomi's going to go back. She's going to be alone. She's got nobody in her life. But she says, I want you to go back. And this gets Ruth. This really moves Ruth. It really gets Ruth. And she says, I want your God. There's something about Naomi's God that's so attractive. She can't dismiss it. She can't write it off. This is when Naomi's faith becomes credible. You know, Ruth is thinking, your God teaches you in the midst of your suffering to put, you, to put my needs ahead of your needs. Wow, I want that. I want that in my life. Get this. The the most transforming facilitator of an encounter with God is the unconditional love of a true friend. I'm going to say that again because it's very important. The most transforming facilitator of an encounter with God is the unfailing love, the unconditional love of a real friend of a true friend. In chapter 2, verse 13, Ruth goes to Boaz and says, you have spoken kindly to me. Why have I earned or deserved this kind of favor? I don't. 
You have spoken kindly to me. That word kind is the word he said. In other words, you're a true friend, Boaz. In chapter 2, verse 20, Naomi goes to Boaz. Naomi's talking about Boaz, and she says, he has not stopped showing this kindness to us. It's that word he said again. Boaz is a true friend. In chapter 3, Boaz goes to Ruth and says, you have made your last kindness even greater than your first kindness. That word Kaseth appears again. She's saying, Boaz is going to Ruth and saying, you are a true friend. Boaz, you're a true friend. Naomi, you're a real friend. You're sacrificing your needs for my needs. Ruth, you are a truly kind person, sacrificing your needs for my needs. It's all the word, every word, every time, the word is the same. This unconditional, powerful love that's real in suffering, real in sacrifice. It extends beyond reason, beyond measure. Ruth is the experience, Ruth is the recipient of sacrificial commitment and love from Naomi. Boaz is the recipient of sacrificial love from, from Ruth. Naomi is the recipient of sacrificial love and commitment. It increases their wisdom, increases their strength, increases their wisdom and strength to show it and demonstrate it to one another to make sacrifices and commitments to one another. It changes their lives forever. Their lives, all three of them, their lives are changed forever. Look, anybody can show a random act of kindness. Anybody can do that. Anybody can show kindness for a variety of reasons, ranging from from superstition all the way to greed, from karma all the way to uh, some sort of greed. And you know this because the moment there's a cost, that love fails. The moment there's tremendous risk, the moment there's a risk of loss or damage or hurt, all of a sudden the conditions start appearing. Case said is an unfailing, unconditional, unmerited, unmerited, transforming love. The power of a true friend. Do you have it? Do you have a Ruth in your life? Are you a Ruth to somebody? Can you be a Ruth to somebody? Very powerful. Number two, signs of, we all need that. We all need it, but we're all called to be one as well. So what's the application there? You need one. Seek one. Build it and become one as well. Okay, you have to experience it. You have to demonstrate it. All right? Number two, there are signs of hope in everyone's life. Never give up on any, anyone. Never give up on any circumstance. You never give up on anyone. Not even the most difficult, mundane sufferings. You never lose hope. Now that hope looks different. That hope is transforming. There has to be a transforming love involved in that, but you don't give up on anybody. You never lose hope. Your skepticism, can't, your skepticism can't overwhelm your view of reality. Right now, God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good. You just don't see it. God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and your good. There's nothing about the book of Ruth. What I love about this book is that it's a boring book. If you read about it, there's nothing in this book that's sexy. Nothing in, there's no miracles. There are no dreams. There are no prophecies. There's no direct contact with God. God is not even really mentioned in this book. There are no dramatic answers to prayer. There is just mundane, daily hardship and suffering. And yet, God has been at work all along in the background, 
in the brokenness, working through the brokenness for his glory and for their good. Even if Naomi doesn't see it, Naomi believes in the Lord. He says, this is my Lord, capital L-O-R-D. It's a very special word. This is my Yahweh. This is my Lord. I have a very personal relationship. And yet she says, my life has turned bitter. This God has turned against me. Underneath this veil of suffering, underneath this veil of loss, have you ever been so broken that you just can't see one step ahead of you? You cannot, there's so much uncertainty, so much brokenness, you can't see one step in front of you. Now, most of us here are relatively young. You probably haven't ever experienced something to that degree, and yet we've still suffered. There's still moments where the future seems dark or bleak. Have you ever been in that place where you, you can't really see ahead of you too far? because you've made certain mistakes, there's so much brokenness in your life, there's this veil of suffering and loss, and yet God is working despite that suffering. Not just despite it, he's working through it to build you to become wiser, to build you to become stronger, more courageous, and to humble you, to become more like him, his own character. Naomi comes back and says, I'm empty. Call me Mara. I am bitter. But she's got this incredible treasure in Ruth walking with her and she still doesn't see it. She's got this incredible treasure in Ruth. And that's going to shape her and that's going to change her. It's going to change her life. And yet, she doesn't see it. She doesn't see it for a while. Think about this. If you don't see the blessings right now, is it logical to say they must not be there? If you can't see the future right now, does that mean, oh, I must not have a future? If you don't see, you know, the coming joy down the pike. Does that mean there must not be any joy? Is it reasonable to say that? Is it logical to say that? Of course it's not logical to say that. Of course it's not reasonable to say that. It just means that you have finite eyes that cannot see what is even beyond what is the immediate and the finite. You need an eternal vision. And there is only one who has that. Trust him. Love him. Trust him. It just happened to be that Naomi's husband died, that her sons died. It just happened to be that they were in the nation of Moab, married to Ruth and Orpah. It just happened to be that they had to come back to Bethlehem and Ruth is gleaning in Boaz's field. It just happened to be that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer of, of Naomi. It just happens to be that Boaz, the one person that can save the entire family, it just happened to be that while Ruth is gleaning in the fields, Boaz happened to see and catch Ruth. It just happened to be that Boaz is an ancestor to Christ. Do you think it's all chance? Is that all coincidence? Is that all chance? Naomi didn't see it, but what about you? Look at your circumstances. Plug into this story. That's what it means to plug into the story. You've got to plug into, you got to take your sufferings and plug your sufferings into this storyline. That means that in the bleakest times, there's hope. You see that? No, Naomi couldn't see it, but what about you? Can you see it? I mean, it doesn't take a tremendously mature person to be able to say, I think I can see it. You don't have to have grown up in the church to be able to say, I think I can see it. Do you see it? That God is working through every weakness, every sin, every ugliness in your life. God is working through every strength, every gift. God is working through your looks, your figure, your struggles with that. 
God is working through your family situation, your pedigree, your education, all of your circumstances, every mistake you've made. God is working through every one of these things. One day, we're going to be able to look back in awe at the great love of God that crafted all of our circumstances together for his glory and for our good. One day we're going to be able to sit on top of that mountain and be able to look and see everything in its fullness and conclude. We're all going to be able to conclude together. This is amazing, and it's for God's glory and for our good, and now we can see it. Can you take that trust and that hope on top of that mountain and apply it in your valley? Can you do that? Will you do that? One day you're going to be in awe when you finally see. God loves to work in the broken. Hard, difficult, challenging, mundane sufferings in our lives. If you feel like a nobody sometimes in your life, God is working through the nobodies. If you feel like an outcast in your life, God is working through outcasts. So if you're an outcast, then you're living out the prerequisite of what it means to have God working in your life and through you. Are you struggling with your poverty? Are you struggling with just being morally poor or even financially broken? Are you struggling with uh, your pedigree or the fact that you're, you just feel like you don't fit in any category in your life? You feel like a widow. God is working through widows. God works through the orphans. God works through the foreigners and the outcasts. There is nothing that God cannot work in. There is absolutely nothing that God cannot work in to bring about his own plan of redemption. Now, the problem is we have our own plan of redemption. And a lot of times, most of the time, it's not aligned to God's plan of redemption. The ultimate, he's the one that sits on top of the mountain. He can see all. He knows all. He crafts all. He ordains and brings all these circumstances and interweaves them into our lives so that in the end, what happens? We can say, wow, it was all for his glory. And all of this, even the most mundane sufferings are for our good. Can you see that? Don't just plug into your own story. If you do that, you become very self-absorbed. You're going to get trapped in your own story. You, it's, your story becomes very, very dark, very, very bleak. You've got to plug into the greater story that God has crafted. And it's written in the scriptures. Study the scriptures. See that plan of redemption. Plug into that story and one day, think about this, one day all of your sorrow, all of your loss, all of your bitterness. The, the Bible shows us that one day all these things will be subsumed by joy that is coming that will completely overwhelm and overturn and subsume all of our sufferings to the degree where we can look back and say, we needed that to happen. It must have happened for our good. It had to have happened for your glory. And we would be blessed by that. That's hard to see sometimes, isn't it? But that's the reality. If God can work through the deepest darkness, the sacrifice and the loss of his own son, the brokenness of his own son. If God can work through that deepest darkness, even on the cross, there was darkness. There was physical darkness. There was earthquake. The ground shook. Every foundation was torn. Even for the religious, the, 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 uh, the veil that separated God's presence from his people was torn in half, torn in two, top to bottom. And yet, in that deepest darkness, what seemed, if you were a, a bystander there watching everything happening, you would say, what good can come from this? This man who says he's the king of the Jews is dying and he will die and he is dead. He is completely broken and in shame. What good can come of this? And yet, it was the greatest good that came of that. Couldn't God work in your suffering? 
Would not God work in your brokenness? Naomi says, God has abandoned me. One day we can look and say, we will never be able to say, if you really trust, if you put yourself into this story, you will never be able to say, God has abandoned me. Naomi says, I am bitter. But there's Ruth right there, right next to her. She, she can't, you don't even have to see very far. You don't even have to see very far. You don't have to look very far. What does that mean? In our daily lives, in our daily suffering, sometimes you are a Ruth. Sometimes you need a Ruth. You have to think and reflect and cherish and savor and treasure every friendship. Every friendship. Every difficult moment. Every opportunity. But you never lose hope. Never lose hope. Okay? Lastly, we see this counterintuitive, transforming grace of God. Here's Ruth. In a traditional society, she's a nobody. And yet, she subverts this, this widow, this foreigner widow. Put this in context. This foreigner widow, she is a nobody of nobodies, and yet she completely overturns society. Naomi tries to send Ruth back to her family. She says, you don't have a chance. You have at least a chance if you stay back because the traditional focus back then was your family. But Ruth chooses to reject her father and mother reject her home, completely goes against the world's values. She says, I get it. Family is important. You are my family now. You are my family. She subverts the world's values. She says, I've experienced a grace that I cannot explain, that I cannot dismiss. I want my life to be based on this grace. It's not like she set out to prove something for herself. But because she experienced grace, she becomes the breadwinner, she's the worker, she becomes the career woman. She's the one that goes out and labors and toils and sacrifices and suffers. In this narrative, it's the woman, the younger woman who is outcast and a foreigner that becomes the hero. It's the poverty-stricken woman, the disaster-stricken woman that becomes the hero. In a traditional society, you didn't have such things as an interracial marriage. Yet here, salvation. She is spliced into the line of Jesus Christ. Ultimate salvation comes as a descendant of an interracial marriage. That is unbelievable, if you think about it. Unbelievable. What is God saying? I don't care about the world's values. My values are counterintuitive. My values are upside down. And if you want to align, if you want to connect, which is faith, if you want to connect with that, then your values must be upside down. Your values must be counterintuitive. You have to take every impulse that you have to take matters and life into your own hands because we all think right side up. We think that power comes through might, through wealth, through building. The gospel says power comes through brokenness. Ultimate power comes through brokenness and weakness and humility and disaster. That's how you become truly strong. In chapter 4, they say, Ruth, Naomi, Ruth, is greater than seven sons. Seven is the perfect number. And that means what they're saying to Naomi is that Ruth, upon seeing her child, they say Ruth is greater than an infinite number of sons. You can have the perfect son and it wouldn't be greater than Ruth. Ruth is a nobody and yet that's what they say about Ruth. The lesser has become the greatest. 
God has used the brokenness of Naomi, the brokenness of Ruth, to bring about a joy that's going to shape all their lives. And it also preserves God's promise. God's promise remains absolutely intact because Jesus Christ comes out of that line. That's grace. God chooses to work through the younger, the poor, the widow, the foreigner, the outcast, the woman, all upside down in that society. And yet that is God's view of right side up. The prerequisite, if you're sitting here and saying, I'm broken, there is nothing that I can do to salvage my future. I made so many mistakes, I can never come back. I can never turn around. No one will ever accept me again. I've, I'm at a complete loss. I've, I've damaged my life and my future, my career, whatever it is. And yet, if you have that mentality, that kind of mentality, actually the Bible says it's not just an if, you must have that mentality as a prerequisite to experiencing the grace of God. That means you are close, if not closer than anyone else, to experiencing God's grace, if that's where you are. God's grace is always counterintuitive to what we value. Some of us here are broken, or we're like Mara, we're bitter. We're empty because we've suffered rejection, loss, mistakes that we feel cannot be overturned, this passage, you know what this passage says? You can be free. You can be free. There's some of us here who feel like you fit in. You've done everything right. And you, from a traditional mindset, traditional mold, you actually do fit in. But what you're doing is you're laboring then. You're, you're constantly working for your pedigree. You're constantly working for the approval of your families. You're constantly working for the approval of your friends. You're constantly working and laboring and toiling and sweating for your children, for your house, for your future. And you're, you're manipulating your future. You're trying to control your future. That's the source of all of your anxiety. That's your nightmare. To lose any one of these things is nightmare. That's a lot of nightmares. It's going to become a source of your emptiness tomorrow because they will never satisfy. They were never meant to satisfy and they won't. Life gets way more complex as you get older. This says you can be free. You can be free of that anxiety. This is the end of snobbishness. This is the end of comparisons. But it's also the end of your bitterness, the end of your pride, the end of your ego, the end of your anxieties. Who's the hero here? A nobody. You would never compare... Most of us compare to pe- ourselves to people who are better than us. You would never compare yourself to someone like Ruth. You know why? Because you would always win. It's not even a contest. But yet she- Ruth is the hero. Do you get that? You can be free. You can be free. Will you be shaped by the counterintuitive, transforming grace of God? Because if you are, you can be free of the world's values. Can you be overwhelmed by the love and grace of God in a way that shapes your values? Let's pray. Come on, guys. You you know I would never end a sermon like that, right? I would never end a sermon like that. Some of you are like, you got me, you know. Uh, If you've been at Metro long enough, I would never end a sermon this way. I would never say, how do you get free? Just do this and be this. Try harder. Live more sacrificially. If you're honest and if you're thinking about it, you're going to say, I can't. Who can do this? Who can live that sacrificially? Who can be that kind of a friend and not expect anything in return? Who can be that trusting and not want to control uh, in the midst of uh, anxiety and risk bitterness? 
Who can be that um, loving and kind in a way that you never expect anything back from somebody else or never manipulate anybody else for their love in return? Who can be that hoping on their own, cherishing every moment, especially their suffering? Who can do that on their own strength? Who can live so counterintuitively on their own without any risk of bitterness or manipulation? How do you become free? You've got to plug into the greater story, a greater story than even the story of Ruth. Why is Ruth? Something I, very early in the message, very early in the sermon, why is Ruth in the Bible? It's because Ruth points to someone who comes from her. Ruth is a signpost to a greater Ruth. Ruth left her father's house, her family, not at the risk of what could happen, knowing that it's going to be a worse life. Ruth left what could have been Ruth left her home country, and she came down, became an outsider, became a foreigner, risked being beaten, risked being scorned, risked her life. She became a sufferer. She became a servant, a worker. She became undignified. She became unwomanly at times. She became rejected. She became scorned. She became despised. She set the pace for her descendant. Who is her descendant? Ruth saw an act of sacrificial love that she couldn't explain, that she couldn't account for, and it changed her life. It's the transforming, overturning, counterintuitive love of God. That's what she experienced. And at the sight of Naomi's active love made Ruth actively love her back. How much more the sight of he left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Jesus Christ left the ultimate house. Jesus Christ left his father. Jesus Christ left his home. Jesus Christ left his country. Jesus Christ left all that was good, all that was comfortable, all that was honor and glory, and he came down, and he came to what? John chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, and yet his own did not receive him. His own did not even recognize him. His own did not know him. His own did not receive him. What does that mean? Ruth came at the risk of violence. Jesus Christ came at the certainty of violence to himself. And so he became an outsider. He endured poverty. He endured our poverty of sin. He endured the brokenness. You want to get a picture of Kesev? Love. You want to get a picture of unfailing love and loyalty extended beyond all measure, be unmerited, unconditional? You want to experience that? You want to get a picture of that kind of he said? The cross is the ultimate picture of Jesus Christ putting your needs ahead of his own. Without anything, knowing he's not going to get anything back in return but you. He says, I don't want anything from you. You can't offer anything. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You can't merit it. It is my favor, my love for you. I just want you. Where you go, I will go. Let there be nothing but death that could separate me from you. And yet, it was through that death and through that brokenness that he bound us together in him. Not even death could separate us. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, he says this. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or danger or sword. The Apostle Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel or demon, nor demon, neither the present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and on. Naomi says, may God deal bitterly. My God has dealt bitterly with me. He has devastated me. He has broken me, and I am bitter. But in reality, God was present all along. God was present through Ruth. On the cross, Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, my God has really dealt bitterly with me. He has smitten me. He has devastated me. He has abandoned me. He has truly made me an outcast. I am forsaken, and as a result, I am really empty, truly empty. I'm truly broken. God has really dealt bitterly with me. And I did it for you so that I will never abandon you. So you will know every time you look at the cross, you know God will never abandon you. For those of us who are in Christ, God, he was always present. That's why we have hope. That's why we can hope. That's why we can trust. That's why these words are true. We can always trust. He has always made good on his promise. When, G- when you see that what Jesus has done for us, you're experiencing the side of the ultimate Naomi who said, I'm going to put your needs ahead of my own. You have a picture of the ultimate Ruth who says, where you go, I will go. Not even death will separate us. Not even death. That's really what Ruth was saying to Naomi. Where you die, I will die. Not even death will separate us. We will be di- that we'll die together. The Apostle Paul says, when Jesus died, you died with him. And when he rises, you will rise with him. He is with us forever. God will use our brokenness. Even our death will ultimately complete binding us to him forever. The thing that could destroy you most, God uses to bind you closest to him. And if that's the case, if even death can separate you from God through the love of Christ, then nothing can separate the love. Not one sin, not one suffering. You can always have hope. You see that? You can always have hope. And when you see what Jesus did for you, when the truth and the reality of the gospel actually gets in and penetrates your heart, penetrates your soul to the core, it's going to overwhelm everything because then you can be a real Naomi, right? You can be truly sweet. You know you're truly sweet. Even though you feel like you're Mara sometimes, you know that in Christ you are sweet because Jesus Christ became Mara for you. You see that? You can be a Ruth to other people. You can, you can have hope in suffering. You can actually go beyond. You can demonstrate a love that goes beyond all measure, not expecting anything in return because you've received everything and you are fully and wholly sufficient in Christ in Him. You know that. That's how you can be free from bitterness. That's how you can be free from anxiety. That's how you can be free from the world's values. You know, in our world, we idolize the spouse. We idolize our families. We idolize our children. Our children have really become really the boss in the house. And, uh, and it's, and it's going to tear up our society, actually. It's tearing up our society. You can live free from bitterness and anxiety. 
We have an even greater Ruth in Jesus Christ. God has worked through the ultimate brokenness to bring about the ultimate joy that will one day come in. And as it comes and, and is birthed in full, it will subsume all that is broken in your life. It will overturn all that is broken. It's like the curse will one day be broken once and for all. And all that brokenness will be wrapped up in joy. And you will be able to be glad in him. Glad. Ruth is greater than seven sons, an infinite number of sons. Jesus Christ is the ultimate Ruth, the ultimate son. Be shaped by his love. Be shaped by the presence of God in your life. And when you're shaped by the transforming presence of God in your life through Ruth's in your life, you can become a Ruth. You can have hope in the midst of suffering. You can cherish every moment. You can take advantage of every moment. Every moment becomes an opportunity for you. And you will be shaped into greater kindness, greater wisdom, greater courage, greater joy. Now we can pray. Let's pray.